What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And today, Cole is not with me because he decided to be more fun to go get a COVID-19 test. So I'm letting him do that. And instead, I actually have a couple buddies of mine coming in uh, through the Zoom, doing another Zoom interview with. Once again, I think this is his seventh, maybe eighth time. I probably should have looked that up before I started talking. Dr. Brian Gilbert on the podcast once again. What's going on, buddy? What's going on, man? Living this dream. And he is joined by his PGY2 resident, Dr. Katie Tabaka. And she is going to kind of join us tonight. And she's super, super thrilled, not nervous, even a little bit. So that's good. <laughs> Katie, how's it going? Good. Going good. Day eight of residency. So PGY2. <laughs> Day eight of residency, and I already got her on the core console podcast. Yeah, that's key for sure. It's part of. It's actually on the checklist. So, honestly, if you didn't weren't a part of this, it wouldn't even really count as your second year of residency. Honestly, I I mean, maybe not even get the certificate. Right. Honestly, I would hope hope not. (laughs) So, how's everything going for y'all? Is all this craziness going on in the world? Oh man, it's tough not to like mention the big, uh, big C word, but yeah, it's like COVID central over here. So trying to, uh, prayers out to Cole, hopefully it comes back negative. Hopefully he doesn't have to deal with that mess. Hopefully you guys too, you and your wife and fam, but it's, uh, it's no joke. So definitely, uh, social distance, uh, ask up and believe the hype because it's definitely, definitely here and it's definitely real. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and Katie, how does it feel uh, to start your second year residency doing, you know, critical care, emergency medicine in the middle of uh, the first time ever pandemic? Is that what you expected or? Yeah, well, I guess we don't have anything else to compare it to, but it's definitely an exciting time. Um, um, how's the, how's like, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay. Um, the patient population is impacting where I'm studying, and um, so it's exciting to get to learn about this pandemic. So, how's the transition been from you going from PGY one to PGY two? Has it been pretty much the same kind of stuff, or does this one seem a lot more intense? Now you got to hang out with this Brian character, so that's got to be rough. <laughs> no, should I leave? Like this kind of feels like a character. I feel attacked a little bit. Maybe you'll get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I moved states, so the transition is different, just learning the different laws, um, moving from Missouri to Kansas, but also I just get to focus on what I'm passionate about and interested, which is critical care, um, so I don't have to go through those other rotations that I might not be as excited about, so I'm really ready for this year. It is going to be more intense, just given the um, subject matter, but I'm excited for it. I mean, day eight, she's already doing public speaking, which... Isn't my favorite. Isn't her favorite. She dude, like it's her job too. Like no big deal. This is awesome. She's crushing it. Tell you what. Good job, residency already have high hopes. We're really looking forward to a good year. So hopefully the pandemic doesn't but go too crazy to where we can do things in a safe manner, but also sort of fun manner. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, Katie, I'll ask you one more thing. And I'll leave you alone. But um, have you have you always known that you wanted to go into critical care? Or is that something you kind of got interested in during like your fourth year rotations, or how'd that work? Yeah, I actually developed my interest during my PGY1 uh, residency experience. So I had a lot of interest areas going in and narrowed it down during my first um, few months. We had a pretty heavy uh, critical care component to our PGY1 experience. So I really developed that passion during that year. That's cool. How'd you end up uh, all the way in Kansas? I got to ask that too. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I just reviewed a lot of different programs and um, met Brian during PPS and our interests matched up um, pretty well. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, one of our, so Jake, a previous, uh, uh, I guess, guest on the pod was uh, from the spot that she did her PGY1. So, you know, we reached out, said, send us everybody that's good. You know how we do. We, we definitely don't uh, discriminate here in Kansas. We try to take as many good folks as we can. And so been lucky enough from your pod and uh, a couple others. And so, yeah, it just worked out great in terms of, you know, what we look for in a resident and then hopefully what she's looking for in a program. So hopefully we end up uh, <laughs> doing the, all the right things. Like as a first year RPD, I'm scared to death and nervous as hell. Uh, so I, I call it Vince Vonning a lot where I just start rambling and she's just nodding very politely. Like this guy, I won't shut the hell up, but, yeah. but it's like, what uh, have I done? Exactly. <laughs> so hopefully we haven't scared her off too, too fast here. No, that's awesome. Very cool. Are you the only one in this, in the program, Katie, or you, do you have anybody else that are is on, uh, like doing residency, their, their second year of residency with you? Or is it just, are you the only critical care resident? Yeah. I'm the only critical care resident and the only PGY2. Oh, man. So it's all She's on. She's the de facto chief. It's all on you. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. This is good. This is the month of no pressure for you. That's that's outstanding. All the leadership opportunities. All of them. That's good because then uh, you can take Brian's job. I'm, no, you know, no, no problem whatsoever after this year and he'll be good to go. <laughs> I train them just like a little bit below so they don't ever take my job. That's I the whole it. point. That's, that's a good goal. tactic. That's a good tactic <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so Brian, man, we have talked about a lot of stuff with you on the podcast. We've done uh, traumatic brain injury. We've done sepsis. We've done several other things. What are we talking about today? Today. So right in the middle of it, we were trying to figure out what would be a good topic on this and boom, unfortunately, and it, it is unfortunate, we had a patient that went into cardiac arrest and then was brought to us uh, to the ED uh, via EMS. So talking cardiac arrest today, code blues, all the, all the sort of quote unquote fun stuff that is part of critical care and that resuscitation period. So no, that's good. So, and you weren't supposed to, you were supposed to act like we've been planning this for like a long time, not literally 30 minutes before the podcast started. We came up with a topic. We, we planned this while well, that was, that was the pre-meeting to the other meetings that we've had about right. that. You so. know, you know, we're big on meetings and like, we just, we just planning everything out extensively. Our quarterlies and our, what are our other buzzwords we can say? 
Yeah, it's a bunch of whatever that corporate people like. You can, me and Cole have never had a meeting in our entire lives. So if we could, what do you want to do? I don't know. I guess we could try that and see how it goes. And yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, but, no one may ever actually hear this. So that's that's the funny part. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Just tell that for Katie's sake. <laughs> so, all right. So cardiac arrest. Um, what do you kind of want to start with it? Can we talk, I guess, even like briefly about kind of the pathophysiology behind it? Like what's going on? Like when, when that actually is, you know, that's a common, I think, phrase that people throw out there, but what does that actually mean? What's happening? Yeah. So when you, you know, you're, you're hanging out, depending on wherever you're at, either you're away from the ED or in the ICU, you know, where, wherever it's at, you get the page and it says code blue. So a lot of things rush, rush through your mind in terms of, really just as a pharmacist and a clinician to start. So, you know, the first thing you got to think about when you get to the bedside is always, uh, and for anyone listening, this can always be an answer for any of your emergency medicine rotations, but uh, you want to think about your ABCs. So your airway, your breathing, and your circulation, right? So if you ever get stuck into uh, not knowing the correct answer of, any of your preceptors, if you always revert back to that, you'll usually 90% of the time be in the right area. But when, it, when, we, when we talk about uh, cardiac arrest, we essentially are saying that there is a dysregulated cardiac uh, functioning that is happening at that point, whether it's uh, actually due to the heart itself or if it's due to sources outside of the heart. Um, those are the two main things that you really break down or at least we think about when we get to the bedside to the patient is, is one, those ABCs, and then two, uh, sort of what we are predicting is going on. So, and is it still kind of classified as like primary cardiac arrest, where there's like you have full oxygenation at the time of like the actual arrest, and then secondary is where the hypoxia has led up to the arrest? Is that still kind of differentiated or are they lumped together? Uh, so really the, the biggest things that we try to do now is uh, identify uh, based off rhythms, the initial rhythm. So um, does the patient have what's called a shockable rhythm? So are we going to be able to uh, send them electrical currents uh, to, to the heart and to the area? Um, to sort of restart it or re-kick it into a normal rhythm, or is it non-shockable where there's a level activity, but the actual cardiac function itself um, is disrupted. And so really those are two different um, algorithms when you start to consider uh, ACLS or advanced cardiac uh, life support. And, and so those are your big, big sort of differentiators. And there's um, different steps we take um, but that's how we differentiate to start with. So you mean to tell me that like in the movies, when I see every single person who codes or just dies on the tail, that you can't just shock them back to reality? Yeah. Yeah. So that happens quite a bit on TV where it <laughs> is totally, <laughs> totally inaccurate. Uh, you know, the, the whole, I'm just going to take the, pad. that's the other thing is the pads. Everybody has the shockable. You, you got to warm like, them up. Everybody knows you gotta that. Warm them up. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you're calling Thor, the right. God of Thunder here, trying right. to get them in. <laughs> uh, Step no, one. Most of, yeah, exactly. Most of them are pretty much, uh, via these small little patches. Now, back in the day, they did have the little, uh, small areas that you would use, but now we place them onto the patient. Um, and they give uh, more direct and you know, probably a little bit safer um, 
direct current to the heart. So, you know, as you approach, we get there to the patient and we're, you know, like today my lady was coming in. Um, I like to know that initial rhythm so I can try to, as the pharmacist, I try to differentiate what medications I may need. Um, I also try to revert back to those ABCs, like, am I gonna also need uh, drugs for intubation? Am I gonna need things to augment blood pressure? Uh, is there uh, infection involved? All, all things that I need to consider um, to gather prior to, if I have the time, prior to the patient actually coming in and cardiac arrest. So I like to gather all those things and then uh, if I need them, I will use them. And if not, I can always put them back, but it's always nice to have them. Cause, uh, one thing that, uh, happens during codes, uh, is, is just chaos, straight chaos. Um, you try to limit it as much as possible and you try to anticipate the needs of the patient and the team. Um, but it always feels like for the most part, you're, you get to ask for one thing that you don't bring. So so how, how do you go about as far as kind of training for this? Is this literally just learn as you go or do you spend some time in this? I know like in school, you spend like a day in the sim lab. Um, do you guys utilize that more so in like the residency route or is that something that actually gets done to practice and kind of keep those nerves under control? Because that's got to obviously be a huge factor in somebody getting kind of hyped up too much and you're, you're, you're not paying attention to what you're doing not reacting properly. So like, is that something that you can, can actually train for? So I'll, I'll talk about our, the program that we have and then maybe any uh, training that Katie's had, but we actually do code simulations. We try to, um, and you know, it's, it's as close to the real deal as we can make it. We try to give real life and sort of real condition training for that. Um, however, when it's a real patient on the, on the table there or on the bed, it does it does hype you up a little bit, uh, and so you can see a lot of um, not I call them rookie mistakes, but basically people just over energetic or um, thinking that they don't have the same amount of time that they uh, actually do. So uh, one of the things I like to recite to the residents as they're doing these things is that slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So being able to calm yourself, calm the nerves, and, and be able to think straight um in a manner that will cause you to or allow you to to do things uh, in a smooth process is actually faster than if you're fumbling around and trying to do things too fast um the other thing i always try to teach them is anticipation so if you've already anticipated or tried to create different algorithms for yourself uh, at that point you're just reacting to what you've already created as opposed to trying to come up with something on the spot uh, it's analogous to the Sherlock Holmes movies that I really like where Robert Downey Jr. will basically in slow motion tell you what's about to happen. And then as it goes real fast, it does exactly what he uh, said out loud would happen. And so that's what we try to teach. And that's uh, that comes a little bit with time and experience, but um, we try to replicate it as much as possible. Did you have any training as PGY-1 or in school? Because there is some shifting towards, uh, I know the University of Georgia, uh, where we actually had one of our PGY-1s this year um, with uh, Anthony Hawkins and Andrea Sikora Newsom out there um, in the Georgia area have uh, actually had an ACLS class 
hmm. where they will, or elective that that they teach uh, some of that, which I, they had a poster on at mid-year and I wasn't able to read it, but from what I've heard, I've had pretty good outcomes. Did you have any? We don't have anything in addition to the ACLS certification course um, and BLS course um, that you know, contain pre-reading and then you have to take an exam. And there's always a practical component because you can take it the in-class course or an online course, but even the online course has some sort of practical component to it. Um, but then we just learned on the spot. So we would respond to codes and then always have a senior pharmacist responding with us until we were deemed competent to respond alone. Um, and you just kind of learn that way by being thrown into it. So. And that's what she'll end up getting is um, we end up, we have essentially a checkoff list that they have to meet competency for. And then um, as the PGY2, she'll have a lot more autonomy than, you know, the PGY1s will um, as we feel more comfortable with her in those situations, which we had, I think it was her second day we had, or yeah, second day we had a code um, that we responded to that. You know, I was thinking in the back of my head, I was thinking, yeah, she'll just be watching. And, you know, most first years into second years don't normally jump in right away. A lot of times you have to sort of coach that assertiveness or aggressiveness. And, you know, I look down and grab something and all of a sudden she's right there. She's already mixed up something I was about to. So it was a it was a great surprise to already see her um, being assertive in the room and uh, anticipating those needs. Which a lot of times that sort of aggressiveness and assertiveness can't be coached. You just have to have that. Um, it can definitely be taught a little bit, but um, it's usually it's kind of like the commercial for the Marines, where you hear screaming and people are running away, whereas the Marines are running towards it. Is that's the type of sort of attitude, critical care, emergency medicine people will will have typically. Uh, it's not always, and you can definitely coach it up, but that's usually sort of what you hope to see at least, which was a surprise. So <laughs> basically hashtag winners win, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so basically while you were sitting there doing your, your Sherlock Holmes thing and trying to think four steps ahead and you're just in reality, you're just sitting there staring at the bed. Gaze over there saving the day is what you say. Is what you're Literally saying. What happened was that I'm, oh, I'm with you now. Day, I'm with you. You're, you're daydreaming. I'm daydreaming is I make her job harder by her having to do my work and hers. Literally. So. She's looking at you going, what the heck is he doing? And, like, and then she's like, okay, I guess I should start because he's just looking <laughs> off into space. <laughs> that would have been good. We should make exactly. that into it. We should make that into a spoof. We should. We be should. Good. Be good on TikTok or something. We'll, 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 we'll definitely put that in our back pocket for later. <laughs> So, all right. So walk us through uh, the two, I guess, pathways, algorithms, if you will, um, depending yeah, on yeah, the yeah. rhythm so, and all that. Um, you know, you go into your shockable rhythms, uh, which are primarily going to be your uh, ventricular arrhythmias. Uh-oh, big Rona. Yeah. You all right? No, I just took a sip of my uh, drink and started choking. No big deal. <laughs> Don't mean to interrupt the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're gonna have a respiratory arrest right here. Yeah, we won't even get into respiratory arrest. It's basically today. like tell. It's basically telehealth, right? I mean, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell me what to do. Whatever to get your dog to do compressions no, for you. He would I be guess. no good. He would eat my pizza that's sitting here. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, "Yeah, Dad's sleeping. I don't know what he's doing." Yeah. Uh, so for for straight cardiac, and again, there is uh, the there is algorithms for respiratory arrest, which 
uh, is a whole nother animal itself. And just for today, we'll go over just hard stuff. Um, so your shockable rhythms is your ventricular tachycardias uh, and then your ventricular fibrillation. So those are what I like to say usually, and this is not a catch-all, this is not a hundred percent, but usually when you have a ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, there's something wrong with the heart. So that's why it's easy to shock it back into a rhythm. There is squeeze, there is function, and there is some electrical activity. It's just in a uh, dysrhythmia causing uh, that arrest. So you want to shock that as much as possible. Whereas uh, the non-shockable are typically due to outside, uh, outside sources, outside things affecting the heart. So electrolytes, acidosis, uh, pulmonary embolisms, um, those are actually listed and um, documented under what we call our H's and T's. So as you're running through codes and trying to figure out the cause of a non-shockable rhythm, you can list out these uh, H's and list out these T's to uh, sort of try to correct for those factors. Um, and as you correct for those, hopefully you restore cardiac function. Um, and so those are the two big things that after you have secured airway uh, and you have adequate breathing and you're doing good chest compressions for CPR um, and high quality CPR is those are the things to start considering. If you're in a, in a code situation and those first three, the ABCs aren't taken care of, then it, it doesn't matter what you do on the back end. So um, as pharmacists, we always want to think about how the drugs are uh, affecting the patient and we want to believe that they have some mortality benefit. Um, but in ACLS, really the biggest thing that um, can change mortality and change morbidity is just high quality CPR. So making sure we have adequate perfusion um, during those codes. Now the other stuff helps us get to uh, the end goal. We can't just keep pounding on someone's chest the entire time, but definitely something to, to consider. So as we go down the non-shockable pathway, we start to think about agents like adrenaline or epinephrine to administer. And we will we'll try to uh, essentially kickstart the heart. And, and with uh, epinephrine, we're going to cause some contractility and some squeeze um, because we do have electrical activity. We just don't have any squeeze or functioning. The other thing I'd like to consider during those, uh, in those patients, especially if uh, I know their past medical history, is um, things like calcium. So calcium can actually be given as a, a positive inotrope. Uh, it's actually really good in situations, obviously, with electrolyte issue, issues, especially with hyperkalemia. Uh, you get that cardiac stab uh, membrane stabilization that uh, can actually get you back into uh, normal cardiac function or get you from a non-shockable rhythm to a, a shockable rhythm, which is also a goal. So, um, and then... Potentially, if the patient's been acidotic or been down a really long time, bicarb is pretty controversial on its role and its benefit, but uh, you may see bicarb administered in those situations as well. The sort of theory behind that being that if you're super acidotic, your catecholamines, endogenous or exogenous, aren't going to work as well to help kickstart that heart. Um, so if we can actually and you have cardiac suppression, my, myocyte suppression, 
uh, in acidotic environments. So if you can give bicarb to increase the pH some, you know, potentially you can uh, cause an increase in cardiac function. So when you say great. when you say that's like controversial, is it because there's a lack of mortality data or, or morbidity data, or is it because there's been cases where it shows that it can cause some harm? No, so not really harm. It's just whether or not it actually does anything. Gotcha. Like it, any of these drugs. So when we get back to like you start thinking about any of these drugs, none of them have mortality benefit data. Uh, oh, in fact, good. you can actually find. <laughs> good, good, good. So <laughs> this is why like ACLS can be a little controversial. So epinephrine or adrenaline, when given, really the biggest thing that it can do is get you back to a return of spontaneous uh, circulation uh, or ROSC, as we say. So you basically are getting that return of spontaneous, the heart's beating without us intervening. Now, if a patient, and you and you alluded to it earlier, that primary event versus the secondary hypoxic event, um, that's basically all epinephrine's been shown to do is increase the amount of ROS, but then patients we get back end up having worse neuro outcomes because they're all hypoxic injuries. So there's sort of controversy on the use of epi as well because it doesn't uh, increase mortality. It actually can increase morbidity in certain situations. Um, but the flip side of that is if I don't get return of spontaneous circulation, I can definitely never have a good outcome. So there's st- sort of a uh, controversy there as well uh, on the role of epinephrine. So what's the alternative? I mean, if you're not going to use epinephrine, because that's the way I learned it when I was in school is you get epinephrine first. Sure. Um, so what's the alternative? And just watch and wait and fingers crossed? It is just good high-quality CPR and try to, if you're in a non-shockable rhythm, try to correct those, those things that potentially could be causing the harm to the patient or cause that cardiac dysfunction. But... You know, again, it, it just depends on the, the patient, and it also will depend on uh, what type of code you're running. So one of the questions I always ask my uh, residents is, who do you think usually does better, patients that have codes uh, coming in from the field or patients that code in the hospital? And so usually people think that the hospital, they'd have a better chance, but it's actually those patients obviously have are sicker. They're in the hospital for a reason, so they actually tend to do worse uh, than patients that are coming coding from the field. Um, so there's there's that to consider. There's also uh, comorbidities. So like how sick they were prior to coding. Um, unfortunately, healthcare is a finite resource. And so if you have somebody that's really, really sick um, and you spend all these resources on them that aren't going to improve their mortality or improve their morbidity, um, you have essentially utilized that for somebody when we could have used it somewhere else. So they get a little bit morbid in certain situations um, just due to the fact that um, sometimes you have to decide who's going to get therapy and who doesn't um, as a way of just allocation of resources. And so that's one of the things that a seasoned pharmacist or, or, uh, you know, critical care emergency medicine pharmacists can do for young clinicians, whether they be mid-levels or uh, doctors, is that you can help guide them to a uh, decision that may not be inherently easy, because that is a, someone's family. Gosh, we're getting really deep in here. Uh, but, 
uh, that that could be someone's you know family that is someone's family member at some point, um, which cannot be especially when you have a family that's outside potentially, uh, you know, seeing everything that's going on. You potentially have some very high emotions in those situations, especially those that aren't prepared for um, them to have gone into a code itself. So you can kind of help guide young clinicians and say, hey, look, there's there's really nothing else that could be done. You've done it. One, try to reassure that they've done a good job, but then two, like, you know, there's just nothing else to, to do here. Um, you know, assuming that it's a patient that is not going to have a good outcome post-arrest anyway. Is now, there if you have a young you have a young patient, like you, you're the young patient, you cope when you're choking on your monster right. and stuff like that. We're going to go full court press. Dude, I'll make sure. Of that yeah, for you, please. But. Like literally, <laughs> I got to at least get to episode 200 before I kick the bucket. So if you can, <laughs> if you can really try hard. Give me lots of epinephrine. Give me at least a like, nice way out. Like I'm, I'm not doing good, but I feel alive. <laughs> okay. The moment, you know? Yeah, right I've seen the movies. I know how it works. <laughs> So, so um, we mentioned like getting started, like in the field kind of thing coming in. So does this, let's say, uh, you know, they, they find that it's a shockable rhythm um, on the ambulance, EMTs, will they start epinephrine in the ambulance besides doing compressions and things as well? Or do they always wait till you get in the hospital for that usually? Yeah. So, so if, if they are out in the field, they will start the resuscitation. Um, and they're usually in contact with us in the ED asking, and saying what type of rhythm they're seeing, like, hey, this is a shockable rhythm. Can we give something to uh, shock them? They'll also consider an antiarrhythmic if they are refractory to epinephrine in the field. So things like amiodarone and, and intravenous lidocaine are, are great um, for those indications. You also have potential for um, administering things like magnesium if a patient presents in, in uh, a weird, funky, uh, ventricular tachycardia called torsades to point. It's probably the best medical term there is to be able to say. Yeah. I feel like it's I, like that Winnie, it's that Winnie the Pooh meme, torsades to point. Yeah. <laughs> I always just say torsades because I just feel like such a faker when I try to say to point after <laughs> it. I'm like, I'm so not French or whatever it is. Be, I probably, I've never, I always say torsades too. I'm probably saying it wrong. I say torsades, so, I make it sound like a little more edgy. Like I know what I'm talking about. Like it's just, you know, this guy had to have torsades and blah, blah, blah. People are like, oh, this, guy, keep, this guy's dealt with it. Yeah, this guy must have talked about this before, obviously. That's my, <laughs> that's my strategy. Fake it till you make oh, that's it. My, that's Mike size Corvino. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Should we give him magnesium? Why would we do that? I don't know anything about it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so like our lady, our, our, I should, no HIPAA here, but uh, our patient today mm-hmm. uh, was definitely was, will remain genderless. Genderless, yes. I don't know, you know, I don't know what she, you know. Yeah, yeah this is 2020. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she came in today and, uh, she was from the field and they were already doing compressions. She was in a non-shockable rhythm. She was in a PEA rest, uh, which PEA is pulseless electrical activity. Um, so you essentially have electrical beats to the heart, but there's just no actual squeeze. And so they had already started, um, compressions. We had no line access, so we had to start trying to find you know, veins to drop uh, uh, the intravenous medications into. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't find a line or find a vein that would uh, uh, 
hold a mine at that point. And so, uh, you know, one of the other things you may see in ACLS is the use of intraosseous uh, medication administration. And so we had to, we had to drop an IO uh, at that point. So we dropped it into her uh, right tibia. Um, so that's always fun. You break out the drill and just go, mm. so, and then, and drop it in. And so that's always a good question for, for folks who are in the middle of a code and a pharmacist can definitely play a role is, you know, what can I give through the IO versus IV? And so you really just treat the IO as if it were a large bore vein. So you give it and uh, administer pretty much anything you would IV at that point. So um, as a pharmacist, too, you may be asked to drop an IO at times. Uh, I've been trained on it. I know other pharmacists who have actually done it. I've ever never actually done it myself just because we have always had somebody around. But um, there may be times you are asked to do that, and hopefully you get some training in that. But uh, Otherwise, no <laughs> practice on game day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you just start you looking start around. Drilling. You just start drilling. Yeah. Just go for exactly. it. How hard could it exactly. be? Oh, man. Um, if it comes to that and you have a airway, you can actually drop medications down their endotracheal tube as well. So oh, wow. can be administered drugs. I've, I've done that once, uh, was definitely like having to double check myself on that because yeah. it's not routine or common. IOs are fairly common actually. Um, so EMS will, will have those a lot of times. And so you just do what you can at that moment to make sure that you can try to get the patient back. So starting off, uh, you know, you, you're doing all your, your CPR, all that. If you go, if it's, if it's a shockable rhythm, you try that and then you can, you administer the epinephrine. Is that like an always kind of a go-to um, as far as like, what, is there cases where you wouldn't administer epinephrine like first line, like contraindications no, I mean, or anything? You're pretty much, unless you know the patient history, which we hardly ever do. Like if you, you know, if you knew that this patient was uh Chronic kidney, chronic, uh, chronic kidney disease patient that missed dialysis and you knew that they had a potassium of like eight or something, um, you may may not go for it right at right away. But other than that, it's going to be your go, go to for a lot of things because it gives you a lot of squeeze, uh, can really help with uh, antiarrhythmic properties as well. So it's going to be your first go to for your shockable, non shockables. Your second line agents will differ depending on shockable versus non-shockable. All right. Your first line regimens for any of your rhythms, um, shockable versus non-shockable, is going to be your CPR and then administering that FE every three to five minutes. Um, and then you incorporate those other agents as they go into different rhythms or you have time to look at their labs and get more of a history to figure out those H's and T's like we were talking about um, to treat the underlying cause. So if they stay in um, ventricular fibrillation or uh, VTAC, is it when do you go from epinephrine to potentially check. considering um, amiodarone? We may have a code here. I haven't actually gotten it yet. So. I'm, I'm concerned that they're paging her instead of you. I feel like, dude, you're slowly getting replaced within the first eight days. This is cool. I don't think we've ever actually gotten had a page go off in the middle of a podcast before. There you go. That's what I, I think one other time we had uh, when we were doing the reversal lecture. Oh, that's yeah. right. Because because your yeah. other resident, he came back like literally as we were wrapping up, and he's like, "Cool, missed the whole podcast." 
He's like actually taking care of people. Like yeah, that. we're, well, we're He's actually around. in the other room too. He, he may have some other insights here, but yeah. So basically, if they're refractory to epi with a shockable rhythm, at that point is when you would consider the use of an antiarrhythmic. So you would want to go into either amiodarone or lidocaine. Uh, I prefer lidocaine just because it comes as uh, what we call a carpet jet. So it's already in a syringe usually. So I can just go twist top and uh, put it in. Um, it's a lot cleaner drug. Obviously, it doesn't have the drug-drug interactions. And um, it also will not drop your pressure as much as uh, amiodarone boluses will. Um, however, it just depends. Yep, look at that. I'm, I'm so late on this page. Everybody else has got it two or three minutes before me. But um, slowly get replaced. Maybe I mean, I'll get the chair. A, Maybe it, I'll take Cole's spot. It's inevitable. Here. It's inevitable. Yeah, well, you always got a spot here with us, man. We got two open <laughs> chairs at all times. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that's that's usually what I go to is uh, the lidocaine. Um, the reason a lot of people like Amio is just how comfortable they are with it, and then afterwards you can follow it up with a a drip fairly easily that everyone's comfortable with. Not that you can't do a lidocaine drip. Um, I actually prefer them in those in certain situations. There's some po patient populations you don't want to use it in, but um, the benefit, like in terms of the data, it sort of goes back and forth. Sometimes, like some some ACLS guidelines will say amio first and then lido, and then it'll switch and then it'll go back. And so, it's really just go whatever you're comfortable with in that situation, because there's not like great. Uh, mortality or, or morbidity data with those. So is, is that after you, I mean, when we talk, when we talk about administering these, I mean, is this like one dose? Is this like two doses? Like how, is there a cutoff of like where? Yeah. So you really want to, so it really goes into if, what kind of response you see. So, um, you know, today, my lady, um, we administered, um, calcium and bicarb because she had been down quite a bit of time. So I thought maybe she's acidotic. And when she's acidotic, uh, the kidneys replace essentially that hydrogen ion with potassium. So I thought maybe she's hyperkalemic. Um, and so we got great response or actually got from a PEA to a sinus Brady rhythm, bradycardia rhythm with the administration of one dose of calcium and one dose of bicarb. Um, it was at that point she started, she was really, she had a sinus brady and uh, a little bit of time went by when I was trying to do some other things. The physician had called for an epi drip, uh, which I was trying to make in the, on the fly as well. I had already gathered all my materials. So um, at that point, um, she began to code again. We went from uh, sinus bradycardia to uh, PEA again. So I stuck my head in the room because we also weren't sure if she was uh, COVID positive or not. Mm. Um, so we try to limit as many people we can in the room. So I stuck my head in the room to the doc and said, do you want to try this again since we had good response? And so, um, yeah, we didn't cap it at that point, but there are times when essentially it starts looking like it's futile at whatever you give and you don't want to, uh, continually use resources uh, on a patient where there won't be a good outcome. But that's all you're looking for is really that that trigger that may potentially um, whatever whatever may help you get back to that that normal cardiac function. You want to go with that agent. 
And that brings, and I want to bring up the point of like good, clear communication. Um, I had my uh, mask on, I had my N95, and then I also had a face shield on, and the doc had all his uh, COVID requirements on as well. So in this situation, and just like every other uh, code situation or emergent situation, you want to make sure you have good, clear communication and feedback. I wish this position today had really great control of the room. Um, he never let it get too loud. Um, he had good closed loop feedback. Um, each nurse was doing a great job of communicating and documenting. So uh, those are also keys to cardiac arrest in emergency situations where um, they can really make or break the, the situation. Um, having essentially a control, trying to control the chaos as much as possible. Um, and by doing that with, with clear communication. So as, as a team member, whoever's running the code, and it could be you as the pharmacist, you just want to make sure you have that, um, which does come with practice and uh, sort of that assertiveness we talked about. There, so when I was in school, I had one of my um, AFI rotations was in the surgical and trauma ICU. And I remember like super vividly, we had this one brand new, he's a first year intern, um, MD, and real nice guy. Like, he was a kid, he was like 26 years old. And uh, he, you know, super green. I mean, this was like his like, first month, he's a resident kind of thing, or an intern or whatever. And um, I think the the attending that was that was rounding that day was in surgery. The chief resident was helping the attending, and I think the other two like mid level residents they were gone doing something else with another patient. And he was literally the only MD like on the floor at that moment. And somebody coded like right then and there. And this poor kid, man, I remember his, the look on his face, looking around, and he was like. I mean, just horrified that he's it. And then, I mean, he, he was, this poor kid was like shaking, like put, I don't know why he's putting his lab coat on, but he's like literally putting his lab coat on, I guess, cause he's just panicking. And, um, and, uh, the, my preceptor at the time with, had been doing, he was a critical care pharmacist, has been doing that for 20 years. And he was also like six, eight, he was super tall, like ridiculously tall. And he comes over and he puts his arms like in the kid's shoulder. He goes, Hey, he goes, relax. He goes, you're relieved of your duties. He goes, I want you to go. And he told him what to do. And the kids are like, okay, okay. He just takes off <laughs> to go help. But it was just, I always think about that because it cracked me up. Um, I felt yeah. horrible for him because he was, I mean, I could feel the fear coming off of him. <laughs> I'm not six, eight, but I've, <laughs> but I've, uh, <laughs> But I've done that a few times. Like I said, you, you'll, you'll, there are often times when you're in emergency medicine or critical care where you will have way more code experience than the, the folks that are, uh, and it's also, you may not, you may not, you may have a nurse that has been a 20, 30 year vet that could run this just as easily. Now, like there's certain procedures, obviously, you're not going to be able to intubate as a pharmacist or, or probably shouldn't. If you are, then things have really hit the fan. But other than <laughs> But, you know, there's a possibility, like, you may end up being the one running the code, which is great about ACLS is that everybody should know everyone's role. And as long as you have a clear-cut leader defining those roles um, and you are you have a good uh, team that has good, effective communication, um, you have situations like that where it may not necessarily be a physician that's running the code. Ideally, that's who you would want to run it. So since they can... Uh, Hopefully you have like the, the physician for the patient, but that's not always the case either. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really should be whoever is, has the ability to, to run the code best in terms of experience. And then as well as uh, 
that communication and teamwork or, or be able to guide that. Um, I typically will stand side by side with my young residents, uh, physician residents to try to coach them through it as opposed to just take it over. Um, so a lot of times it's just me whispering into their ear about if it were me, I'd do this, uh, just so they don't lose confidence. And, you know, when the nursing staff sees them, they don't, um, have, have that thought of, oh, he's really green or she's really green. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all about that coaching and mentorship. And that's a, and it goes back into, that's also a great way of developing, uh, relationships with your providers is, um, those opportunities, you know, one of the things that we did the other day and, and the code that we had was we had a good debrief with our, uh, with, with Katie and then one of our PGY one residents. And then the physician that was, uh, in charge of the code, uh, a little bit younger, um, came by as well and sort of impromptu, uh, had the debriefing with us as well. And so, uh, you know, one of the questions he had was how can I get better? And so, you know, those types of uh, checking the white coat at the door type deal um, where they can learn and you can learn from your mistakes or learn from the good things that you did, just in reinforcing those is really key. So, you know, every good coach should end with a debrief. Um, whether or not it happens as a team, I'm not sure, but I definitely try to incorporate it in our residency program. Um, and running those is its own uh, sort of, learning opportunity as well. So she'll get to learn that this year on how to debrief and debrief effectively. Yeah, that's cool. I love too. And I hear stuff like that, like, and you know, and you have an attending physician asking what they can do better. And it's like getting feedback and stuff like that. Like I love you. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's so much ego in medicine to see someone who is in a role of like the leadership and highly trained and stuff like that, be able to still check that and be like, obviously I can get better because you, everybody can. Um, that's super cool. It gives me like hope that we can, you know, keep this, keep rocking and rolling and getting along. But I like that. The, it's a good way of looking at the interprofessionalism too, because having that respect for, you know, the, each other's role and also feeling like you, one role is not like, oh, I'm in charge here. I got this. Like in looking at who's got, you know, the most time, who's going to help the patient the most and not worrying about the ego thing, I think is huge. Yeah, it, it happens and it should happen like that everywhere. I don't, I don't know for sure it does, but I, at least at our institute, plug our institution, it definitely does here. Um, and so it's one of the, the reasons I like working here so much is that um, collaborative opportunity with, with not only our attendings, but then our uh, young resident physicians as well. I mean, a lot of them call us attending pharmacist, which I'm ambiguous to that term, but Hmm. T-shirt time, T-shirt opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Attending pharmacists. I haven't heard that one. I'm just, I usually go with pill pusher myself. You know, <laughs> I actually dispense the pills. I'm like, I'm a pill pusher. Don't worry about it. Well, the first time I heard it, we were, we had walked out of a code and I was with the, the third year physician resident and it was with an intern, their intern year. And I just heard them as I was walking out. Cause I had sort of helped out the third year. And the, and the intern goes, who was that? And he's like, oh, that's an attending pharmacist. And I was like, not that old. But. Yeah, yeah, like, you should see me do surgery, dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm real good at it. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. That's cool, man. Um, anything else like to add? Or, I mean, that was a good little overview. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely it, it definitely gets a lot more complicated uh, in terms of in-depth with the studies and the medications. But really, I think that if you take anything away from this podcast, it's good, effective CPR, good, good leadership, good communication, um, and knowing those things and knowing the futility of certain things and the allocation of resources um, and trying to mentally prepare yourself uh, for those situations so that you aren't overly hype and can and uh, stay calm and, and essentially breathe and meditate through the situation. Not, not dazing off, but yeah, don't do what Brian does and have to have Katie save the day. Cause that's, that's so advised. <laughs> Dude, that was good. That was, that was pretty awesome too. Cause you were like, if anything to take away just this one tiny bullet point, 17 bullet points <laughs> that, was, <Yeah. laughs> that was awesome that's usually me man that's like that's oh, man, i love it that was this great this is most important but also this but if you did that yeah Dude, literally um, literally every time we've talked that's what it turns into it's like this is the most important thing but these are the other six things are probably just as important so i need to say them. <laughs> no man that's good um you know, I always appreciate uh, the information coming on here and uh the, you you know that cole and i are that's got to be our probably on paper besides maybe oncology our weakest area would be critical care so i appreciate you taking the time to come I found on here. my niche i, I kind of found my niche there i got my my, my uh <laughs> dude it's it's your I, it's your set spot now like who else are we gonna there's no other chance i, to... I kind of want to just like digitally put a chair in there that's for sure i mean uh, you, you have at least 11 more months until katie is finished and then obviously i know and then i'll be I able to make... do it full time with you guys yeah well i was getting it maybe we're gonna use her bring her in from now on but like that's fine we can... <laughs> replacing me on all fronts oh man it's brutal <laughs> but now thank you guys both so much for doing this i know y'all are super busy up there so i appreciate you taking the time um uh, Brian, I'll put your uh, email and um, Instagram handle and all that in, uh, in the show notes so people can find you. I think a lot of people already kind of know where to get you, but I'll remind them. And then Katie, don't even start on Katie right now because she doesn't even, she says she doesn't like social media. So we're going to let that slide this one time, but she's going to fix that her path because she's obviously making a gross miscalculation. And, <laughs> and then we're going to uh, make sure that we tag her in it afterwards so because she's gonna realize oh my gosh there's so many opportunities for networking and all this different stuff my my best case in point of this is when people ask me about like well what do you mean by networking and like i'm like listen i have a publication in the american journal of emergency medicine because of instagram and because brian <laughs> hooked me up i'm like do you know what i really don't belong in the american journal of emergency medicine <laughs> like that's a joke that should be followed by hi ah, totally kidding and so yeah on the cv though right dude oh i believe it's in the cd <laughs> the cv what did, did I say your CV? wife let you put it on the refrigerator um i haven't done that yet it is saved on my laptop like desktop does that count it's nice. I, I do have one of my very first uh, publication, and it's, it's like framed. It's a nice moment. So that'll be the the first of many. We'll get you on there some more. Nice. I like By it. Way. I like it. See, see, Katie, it's it's all it's all upside. Just you know, just you get to weed through some of the garbage. But besides that, it's all good. <laughs> But um, all right, so I appreciate it, you guys. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. If you guys have any questions, um, my email will be in the show notes. Uh, and like I said, Brian's will be in there as well. Maybe even Katie's if she's cool with it. And um, if you guys have any questions, concerns, comments, love to hear them. Um, send me an email. I will do my best to get back in touch with you as quick as I can. Um, it's We've been getting 
ridiculous amounts of messages over Instagram, LinkedIn, and all that stuff. So I promise you I'm doing my best, but I think I have 30 messages on LinkedIn I have to respond to tonight and 20 on Instagram. So I'll do my best, I promise. I don't say that to humble brag. I literally say that to be like I'm not ignoring you. I promise. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just appreciate it so much, you guys listening. If uh, you want to support the podcast, make sure you check out Patreon. Um, so it's www.patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. I have all my lectures on there that I do throughout the PA program, and you can get a copy of my slides as well. It's like $3 a month, and you get access to all the content. So it's a good little refresher if you want to, at least in my opinion. And, um, yeah, if you reach out to us on any of the social media platforms, if you want to text me directly, you can reach me at area code 41 five nine four three six one one six and yeah i'll talk to you soon thanks a bunch later